From American Public Media, this is King's Last March. I'm Stephen Smith. It has been 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Half a century on, he remains our nation's most iconic symbol of racial unity. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time. For many people, King remains frozen on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, delivering the words of, I have a dream. But that is not the way he was thought of in the last year of his life. In this series, we bring you back to that final year. In July of 67, violence tore at black neighborhoods in several American cities, including Newark, New Jersey. The rioting began. Small gangs of Negroes roamed the streets, breaking into shops and liquor stores. Fourteen were arrested. When the Newark rioting ended, 23 people were dead. More than 1,000 were in jail. An even bigger riot engulfed Detroit weeks later. Black people in America's inner cities were fed up with poverty and police repression. Young militant activists seem to dismiss Martin Luther King's message of nonviolence. The only politics in this country that's relevant to black people today is the politics of revolution. As the racist police escalate the war in our communities against black people, we reserve the right to self-defense and maximum retaliation. Understand this concept. These are evil times. In our own nation, we see the evilness of the time with the sickness all around. We see the riots in the streets. We see people being killed. We see communities being burned down. We see the conditions that make people act in this misguided, desperate fashion. Over the summer of 67, King's mood darkened as his pessimism about the nation's racial and economic problems grew deeper. We see the great gulf between Negro society and white society. Negroes are shouting, get whitey. All too many whites are shouting, keep the niggers in their place. Negroes are shouting black power, and white people are crying white power. And all around we see the darkness of this day. King had come to a depressing realization. The victories of a few years earlier, passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, had not done much to make economic conditions better for most African Americans. In private conversations, King despaired that he lacked the ideas and the energy to lift America from its darkness. He was so tired. Dorothy Cotton spent years working with King at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was so tired, and I mean spiritually tired, emotionally tired, physically tired. He had talked about the possibility of taking a sabbatical. Andrew Young says King had been offered a one-year pastorate at Riverside Church in New York City. I think that was the greatest temptation of his life. His conscience wouldn't let him. He saw that as an escape. Instead of escaping, King took on a daunting challenge. 
In the last year of his life, he called for a new phase to the civil rights movement, a campaign to finally wipe out poverty. We are merely struggling to integrate a lunch counter now. We're struggling to get some money to be able to buy a hamburger or a steak when we get to the counter. In a series of speeches, King said the fight against poverty would be a much harder battle than the movement for racial justice. The struggle for economic justice would require far greater sacrifice from white America. It didn't cost the nation one penny to integrate lunch counters. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. And the things that we are calling for now will mean that the nation will have to spend billions of dollars in order to solve these problems. In other words, we are in a period where there cannot be a solution to the problem without a radical redistribution of economic and political power. It seemed to some people that King was becoming more radical. Certainly the FBI thought so. It cranked up its smear campaign against King by circulating bogus stories to news organizations about the civil rights leader. But historian Claiborne Carson says King wasn't more radical. He was returning to his ideological roots. Carson directs the King Papers Project at Stanford University. He says King saw himself first and foremost as a minister of the social gospel, which meant... One has a duty to do justice to the poor, to the less fortunate. Um, that, that That's the consistent message going from the Old Testament prophets through Jesus and into the modern world and and what Christians hope to bring to that world. So nothing could have been more central to his mission as a minister than to launch the Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign was King's audacious plan to lead waves of poor people to Washington, to set up a shantytown on the National Mall, to show people in power the faces of the poor. This will be no mere one-day march in Washington but a trek to the nation's capital by suffering and outraged citizens who will go to stay until some definite and positive action is taken to provide jobs and income for the poor. Martin was one of these crazy members of the Christian community who really took Jesus seriously historian and activist Vincent Harding. And believed that the way you get closest to the divine is by getting closer and closer to the most outcast members of the society. And that's a hard path, but once you have chosen it, you know that there is no easy alternative. Leader Martin Luther King Jr. The news conference today in Atlanta said his massive civil disobedience campaign in Washington, D.C. would begin during the first week in April. King told newsmen the campaign would be headed by a corps of 3,000 trained demonstrators. We feel that the time is now. Our summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. Dr. King said his demonstrations would initially employ educational methods, among them the erection of numerous tent cities in Washington to be occupied by thousands of poor Americans. We're going to take some shots up to Washington on those trucks, and we're going to present them as gifts to various departments of the government. 
King refused to disclose specific targets or march routes in the Washington campaign. Said King, and we quote, This campaign will be non-violently conceived and non-violently executed. We're going to the seat of government, not begging, but demanding. We are willing, if necessary, to fill up the jails of Washington and surrounding communities. I want to know tonight if you're going to Washington. All right. I want to know tonight if you're going to Washington. I want to see you there. In the winter of 1968, King traveled the country gathering support for the Poor People's Campaign. He tried to inspire hope and a sense of power in the people who attended his rallies. But privately, King was still battling despair. Because King did suffer. King suffered tremendously. Historian David Garrow wrote a book about King called Bearing the Cross. And he suffered almost entirely in private, but in some of those sermons, particularly his sermons at at his home church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta from that last year, one can hear, one can really hear the degree of, of emotional pain and privation that Martin Luther King is undergoing because of the political courage and political choices he was willing to make. And in every one of us this morning, there's a war going on. It's a civil war. King delivered this sermon at Ebenezer one month before he was killed. The sermon is called Unfulfilled Dreams. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. There is a civil war going on in your life. And every time you set out to be good, there's something pulling on you, telling you to be evil. It's going on in your life. Every time you set out to love, something keeps pulling on you, trying to get you to hate. Every time you set out to be kind and say nice things about people, something is pulling on you to be jealous and envious and to spread evil gossip about them. There's a civil war going on. Every time you say that I'm not going to let this evil habit destroy me, something keeps pulling on you, saying, keep on doing it. It would seem King was speaking about his own inner battles with sin, including his history of adultery. But historian Claiborne Carson says King was also trying to come to terms with the larger struggle between good and evil that he'd been fighting in society. Carson says, with death threats in the air, King was trying to accept that he might not live to see that struggle through. Once he gets to this this period in 1967, 1968, he knows what's at stake, and he knows it's going to be a very difficult struggle, and he knows he may fail. The question I want to raise this morning with you, is your heart right? If your heart isn't right, fix it up today. Get God to fix it up. Get somebody to be able to say about you, you may not have reached the highest height. He may not have realized all of his dreams, but he tried. Yes. Isn't that a wonderful thing for somebody to say about you? He tried to be a good man. 
He tried to be a just man. He tried to be an honest man. His heart was in the right place. And I can hear the voice saying, crying out through the eternities, I accept you. You are the recipient of my grace because it was in your heart. And it is so well that it was within thine heart. I don't know this morning about you, but I can make a testimony. You don't need to go out this morning saying that Martin Luther King is a saint. Oh, no. I want you to know this morning that I'm a sinner like all of God's children, but I want to be a good man. And I want to hear a voice saying to me one day, I take you in and I bless you because you try. It is well that it was within thine heart. What's in your heart this morning? If you get your heart right. In that sermon from spring of 68, Martin Luther King told his congregation at Ebenezer that life is a series of shattered dreams. Even so, he pushed on towards the Poor People's Campaign in Washington. But his commitment to society's outcasts led him to make a detour to Memphis, Tennessee. Next time on King's Last March. It was like he was aware that he was running out of time. And um, even though he was untiring, he was tired. In the last months of King's life, it seemed that he might be losing steam. Maybe his schedule that allowed no time for rest was finally too much for him. Or maybe it was the strain of J. Edgar Hoover always in the background. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved.